0: Welcome to the Herbert Smith Freehills Construction Law Masters Asia podcast series. I am Peter Godwin, Managing Partner of our Malaysian Practice and a member of our Asia Construction Dispute Resolution team. In this episode of the series, I was privileged to be joined by Gohan Lee, a highly experienced construction lawyer who is presently General Counsel, Legal Engineering and Project Delivery at Petronas. My conversation with Go touched on topics including his personal background experience, and career highlights, his thoughts on the legal profession as it impacts the construction industry, and his views on cost management, mediation, and expert evidence. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Good morning. Um, We're privileged to have with us today Mr. Gohan Lee, a very experienced uh, in-house lawyer who is presently General Counsel, Legal and Engineering, and Project Delivery at Petronas. Goh was called to the bar in March 1996, which makes he and I broadly the same legal generation as I qualified as an English lawyer in 1993. Uh, initially, Go remained in private practice with SK Yao and Juganathan, which I'm sure I've pronounced wrongly, so Goh can correct me later, um, practicing mainly in the contentious arena, including getting a taste for construction arbitration. In October 2000, Go made the move-in house with KLCC Property Holdings Bahad, where he was involved in a stream of some of the highest profile development projects in Malaysia. These included the Mandarin Oriental Hotel in KLCC, which is an excellent project. I enjoy that hotel very much. The KL Convention Center just next door. University Technology Patronus out in Trono. uh, Patronus Learning Center in Bangi. The Mesra Mal the Prince Court Medical Center in KL, and Tower 3 at KLCC as well. He also got some experience during that time with overseas projects, being involved in the Reem Island project in Abu Dhabi and the Jabal Omar development in Saudi Arabia. Then in January 2009, he joined Patronus, initially as Legal Counsel Finance, then as Senior Legal Counsel Construction, where he was heavily involved in Project Rapid, one of the world's largest petrochemical plants down in JB. And now since June 2018, he's been general counsel, legal engineering and project delivery. So against that background, we're gonna chat this morning about different stages in his career. And I'm especially keen to elicit some views he may have on how private practice lawyers could adapt their working practices to better support their clients. And also any advice he may have for uh, young lawyers starting out today based upon his experiences. So that's the introduction uh, but let's start off first go with why it was law at all. What initially attracted you to a career in the law?
1: Hi Hi, Peter, thanks for uh, taking the time to speak to me. I think um, your question why law, uh, it wasn't really my ambition to be a lawyer to be honest um i think as all lawyers the reason we ended up doing law is either we 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 had issues with mathematics right so i i my my ambition really was to be an engineer an aeronautical engineer to be exact but uh, as things turned out I, I didn't do so well in my my maths so <laughs> taking the advice from my my teachers i i ended up doing law because um they seem to think I have a flair
0: for languages. Okay. That's very interesting. There's more parallels between our careers than I had realized. When, when I was at school talking to a careers advisor, two years in a row, I was told I should. I was very well suited to be an air traffic controller. Not quite oh. an aeronautical <laughs> engineer, but similar. Um, but I, I actually thought I would be, end up being an accountant or an actuary because I'm one of those strange lawyers that actually found numbers easy at school. So... Um, but my teacher told me well if you want to be an accountant for god's sake go and study something different at university or you'll be bored stupid so he suggested (laughs) law I went off and did a law degree and never looked back so I think we both stumbled into law a little bit accidentally Um, so when, (laughs) when you start when you started your pupillage was construction law any part of what you were thinking about or was it a case like so many young lawyers that You just needed to get a job and then see where the job took you.
1: Well, most definitely not. I think uh, my ideas of concept about law at the time had nothing to do with construction. It was my priority at the time was just looking for a master who was willing to teach me. And somehow I ended up with this master who happened to uh, uh, be one of the leading construction lawyers in KL. And uh, I remember the first day of my pupilage when I uh, started work, um I was asked to read a whole bill of quantities about one feet thick. And you know, there I was reading line by line what was a brick and what was a, you know, how much was the cost of a single brick and things like that. So it was like you say, just stumble upon it construction. And and over the years, somehow um you know, you've you you you've ended up there and, you know, contrary to what people think. I didn't have a particular a specific ambition to do corporate law or things like that. So I, I just let the events carry me along.
0: Yeah. Well, I have to say you must have a lot of patience. I think if I'd been presented with a bill of quantity that thick on day one, I'm not sure I'd have made it to day two. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it it does so sound as though when you started out, there was was an option to choose a master. I rather suspect that in the COVID age in which we're living, it's more a case of can you find anyone who can take you on? Leaving aside COVID, do you think things have changed for young lawyers coming into the profession in that respect? Is there less choice than there used to be?
1: Um, I'm not really sure what the market is right now out there, but... When 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 I came out, I, I still remember we had a roll of uh, petition numbers and I was the 5,000-something lawyer in the country at the time. So I think um, it was a much smaller market then. And yeah. and although it was difficult to find somebody to take on, but it was possible. I mean, um, based on word of mouth or some recommendations, you, you could get pupillage. It wasn't difficult. Yeah. I'm not nice. sure what the situation is today. We've probably got, what, 10,000 or 15,000 lawyers in, in, in Malaysia at the moment. But what I feel is that the opportunities are definitely much more than my time. You know, I mean, there's so many areas that you can go into, uh, you know, digital digital uh, uh, services is one area. We never had when we, we came up, right? So there are many, many areas of the economy that has grown and developed. And I believe that uh, opens up
0: opportunities for 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 young lawyers coming out fresh looking for for jobs. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. So when when you look back on your pupilage, and I appreciate it's a few years ago now, and I confess I struggle to remember that far back. But when you look back on that and your sort of initial years in private practice, what do you think was the biggest influence on your career? Was there was there a particular lawyer who you would consider to have been your mentor?
1: Well, of course, um, I think at, at that point when I was in practice, obvious, obviously it was my master, Mr. SKO. And, uh, you know, I'm very grateful for, for the work ethics that he taught me, you know, uh, especially when it came to integrity and taking pride in our work. Because uh, I, I don't know whether it's it's a norm in this day and time where you find a lot of people actually, have problems looking for uh, good employees who are willing to put in the hours and who are dedicated to the jobs. But when I was doing my pupillage, you know, when it came to that, there's no compromise. It was do your work, do it well, and have uh, integrity in your work. And of course, when when I joined in-house, that was Puan Farida Harris, who not only recruited me, but gave me an opportunity to expand my career within Petronas.
0: Okay, That's very interesting. I think all of us can look back at one or two individuals that have been key to where we've ended up. Um, And you didn't stay in private practice for too long. So what what was the driving force behind you leaving private practice and and joining KLCC property holdings back in 2000?
1: Okay. Uh, I think you recall that period, Peter, we went through this uh, Asian financial crisis, 97, 98. And... (laughs) We we cut our teeth, or so called, we really had our baptism of fire because when you came out in that time, it was just pure litigation and dispute resolution. Uh, you had companies fighting to stay afloat. You had all sorts of corporate battles going on, and and it was it was a very tiring experience to be honest, because you know you're in courts almost every other day, and if you had like in my case, huge construction arbitrations going on. So it was it was a bit draining um, that I spent about four, four almost five years of, of, of my practice life in the courts in and out. And um, I wanted a change of scenery actually. So, you know, before I became jaded, <laughs> so I took the step to begin looking around the papers and uh, opportunities for in-house, to give myself that change and opportunity to move on. Because I was about four years coming to five. So that's a very crucial juncture in a in, in, in lawyer's life in the sense that you either make the cut for partnership and being groomed for partnership, or if you don't make the cut, then you've got to look at other options that probably coming out on your own. So it was really a crossroads for me at, at that juncture in my career.
0: Uh, so it's very interesting. I think we can all sympathise with being tired, particularly after this year that we've all endured with COVID. I think that's enough to make even the most energetic of us tired, quite frankly. Um, I mean, Whilst I've mentioned COVID, I, I know that, like ourselves, Patronus has been largely working from home much of this year. Uh, what how have you found that from a personal perspective and what impact, good or bad, has it had on your team and the, the business that you've been doing? Oh,
1: okay, that's that's a very good question. I think just to share our experience working from home, I think initially when all this happened, right, um, thank goodness that uh, we've we've had this infrastructure uh, set up for a while. In fact, uh, we've had a trial run sometime early in the year in January. Uh, Basically, it's our business continuity uh, process that we were preparing for in the event for whatever reasons that uh, our normal building or office was incapacitated due to any other reason that we would all be able to work off-site. And we had a trial run in January. So when it came in March that we had to do this, thank God it worked out. I mean, save for a couple of breaches, but it, it was fine. It was fine. But I think the challenge was more of the human factor, Peter, in the sense that uh, I had people telling me Oh, Mr. Go, I started the day and I didn't realize until I had finished at the end of the day, I haven't even changed. I've not brushed my teeth. I just (laughs) carried on it, you know, at my desk. So then we begin to realize, hey, hang on, hang on. You can't do this proper downtime because you're working from home. It's not like you can just get up and leave and go home. You're already home. So, we had to really tell our people to manage the balance, meaning that you need to put certain boundaries, right? I mean, humans, we are creatures of routines and boundaries. And what we have seen is once the routines and the boundaries are taken away, we are literally lost. So that was the challenge in the beginning. But once we got settled in with the routines, things sort of worked out. And surprisingly to us, uh, we found out that we actually work more efficiently from home because uh, there was no traffic jams. You don't need to be late for meetings. <laughs> you don't need to run from one office to another office to, to have a physical meeting. It yeah. was just a click and you've gone into the other meeting. So it was more efficient and uh, pleasantly surprised. Management says, hey, this this works. And why not let's look look at this seriously for the long term if we can give people the option.
0: Yeah, no, I think, I think that optionality is really important. I think when you have to work from home, it gets a bit tiresome. But if you've got the opportunity to go some days from home, some days to the office, I think that flexibility is valuable. But um, whoever heads your business continuity team seems to me like they deserve a gold star. Uh, that was a, a brilliant piece of planning back in January. Um, OK, um, so you moved to KRCC. Um, in the first sort of couple of years after that move, did you have reservations about having left private practice or did you instantly think oh i've nailed it this is for me
1: well um not not really not really because uh i kind of enjoyed the normal working hours that i could keep working in-house as you know as a disputes lawyer your, your time and <clears throat> your work hours is really dictated by your work schedule and what i really enjoyed in the first few years was actually calling out my friends who are still in practice and taunting them, you know, telling them at 5 p.m., hey guys, I'm leaving for home. And you know, <laughs> just want to check in on you guys. So yeah, that that was the good part about uh joining in-house at the time. But what I missed about um uh, litigation was of course the 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 cut and the trust and the arguments with counsels.
0: That part of it I suppose uh, you, you don't get in-house. Now I understand. And and these friends that you taunted, are they still friends, Guy? or are they ex-friends?
1: <laughs> well, you know, friendships made in the the that that part of your life when you are growing up, you keep them for life, right? So yes, they're still many friends. They are a lot of them have gone on to become senior counsels in their own right. They are their partners of firms, or some of them have their own practices. So we do meet up. Uh, Uh, now and then for for a meal and we do catch up and and for me it's it's more of keeping
0: the window open to what's happening in the judiciary in 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 courts and things like that yeah that's good that's good to hear but no you're absolutely right those friendships made at that stage of your career generally do last for life um so once you were at klcc you obviously involved in some very high profile property development jobs but Thinking back, what, what would you consider to be the biggest challenge you faced and perhaps the biggest highlights of that part of your career?
1: Okay, um, I would say that it was the first project that uh, I was tasked with, which was the Mandarin Oriental Hotel. Now I, I had just come in at the tail end when the Twin Towers was completed, so all the disputes were already settled before my time. So but the other smaller projects surrounding the KLCC development, and the notable one was Mandarin. Now, the the, the issue with Mandarin was because it was rushed for opening for the 98 Commonwealth Games in KL at that time, they had a lot of issues. I remember there was something like 70,000 defects, most of them waterproofing. So the challenge I had was dealing with a very renowned Japanese contractors, very renowned project managers, and trying to get everything sorted out. And, and what I remember at the end was that we had successfully claimed on the construction all-risk policy to cover some of the costs of these defects. I had uh, drafted an encompassing settlement agreement to get everybody to sign up and to close up all the claims. So to me, being uh, apart from being challenging and daunting, but it was very rewarding because... After about a year plus that I've come on, I've
0: managed to close out the the Mandarin defects and you know move on from there. So, yeah. certainly a lack of waterproofing in KL would have been a major defect. That's not a minor issue with some of the storms we get here. Um, so now well, let's hope the Japanese have learned their lessons because they've been building manically for the Summer Olympics, of course. So um, hopefully the the fact that got delayed a year means they've had an extra year to to resolve any defects that they may have had there. Um, but in, ad- in addition to those KL projects, you, we, I mentioned earlier, you had some experience with Middle Eastern projects. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Were there new challenges you encountered on those projects that differed from what you were used to in Malaysia, dealing with domestic projects? Oh, yes. Negotiating <laughs> with Arab
1: uh, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was an eye-opener, right? And, uh, of course, the peculiarities in, in contracting in that part of the world where you have an English version and an Arabic version, and the Arabic version will always prevail, right? But I think um, what what, um, was interesting is it was a very good experience because, uh, you know, being a local player, you don't really get to gauge or benchmark your abilities. And by going international, even in the Middle East, it gave us a sort of... uh, uh, a benchmark how we could measure ourselves
0: and our abilities. So I would say that was a very good experience. Okay, so looking back at those challenges, are there, it sounds like there were lessons you learned then that remain useful in your current role.
1: Yes, definitely cross-cultural negotiations because uh, you realize that you couldn't take the same approach in negotiating with uh, familiar parties or familiar environment you really then had to take into account all the very subtle nuances or cultural differences. How would uh, another person of another nationality see a certain issue? And that was, to me, the most uh, beneficial uh, thing that I got uh, you know, from that overseas experience. That's
0: yeah. uh, very interesting. It's, it's also interesting to me to hear you talking about benchmarking yourself against people from other countries, and interesting to hear you talk of gaining confidence. Uh, I've been in Malaysia now, as you know, for almost four years, and it strikes me that Malaysia is full of very talented people, and I would certainly put the young lawyers I work with on a par with any I've worked with around the world, but I do sense with many, uh, certainly I would say the majority, a real lack of confidence when they compare themselves to their international counterparts. Is that, is that a cultural issue or is there something more fundamental driving that?
1: I think um, probably a bit of both. One, one I would say would be the lack of opportunity and experience, right? Now, if, if I had stayed on in-house, I probably would not uh, be able to get this, this international exposure. And the other is also a bit of a mindset issue because I think oftentimes, you know, we've always been compared to the more so-called superior or competitive people around the region and and there is a sense of, uh, I I wouldn't call it an inferiority complex, but a mindset that, oh, you know, so-and-so is better, Uh, we've not been able to measure up to them. And that is, like you said, it's a fallacy because I think we are more, uh, we are equal, if not sometimes even better than most most of our peers out there. And it's just the lack of opportunity and, 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 and uh, exposure, you know.
0: Yeah, well, I'd better be careful about agreeing too violently that you're better, but I can certainly agree that you're on a, on a par for sure. Um, it's really good to see, to be honest. I think you've got some fabulous talent in this country. Um, so let, let's talk a little bit about the move to Patronus. I mean, first of all, what what, what was the principal reason for you moving? Um,
1: well actually it was due to my involvement in the Prince Scott Medical Center project I think um, KLCC were the project managers and I was the lawyer advising the project manager and we've gone into some very bad disputes uh, for that project to the extent that we had to terminate the main contractor at about 90 plus percent completion of the works so you can imagine the issues that that came out from that and it, it was so uh, bitterly fought that parties had injunctions flying both sides and, and we had councils and I was in the midst of all that trying to manage the affidavits and advising Petronas, which was the owner, uh, what were the strategic positions we should take to resolve the matter. So I think um, I sort of got noticed by Petronas Legal,
0: Eagle and that's how I, uh, I was courted and brought in to the larger group. But, you, I mean, from what you've just said, you were very much doing a disputes role at KLCC and you, you joined Petronas in a finance role. How, how, yeah. That's quite a change. How did that come about?
1: Well, it was simply because the person who uh, brought me in was heading the uh, legal finance and corporate secretary portfolio.
0: So I ended up spending some time there under her. I see. Okay. okay. So it's certainly true in private practice that one of the things lawyers find hard is to achieve a change like that in the type of work they were they're able to do if you in private practice if you start out as a disputes lawyer you tend to find yourself a disputes lawyer for life or if you start out as a corporate lawyer similarly um so that fundamental career change isn't easy in private practices is, is your experience unusual or do you think it is actually easier to do that in an in-house role
1: well contrary uh i found it Quite easy to transit into an in house role. In fact, I found having a dispute background uh, beneficial. Now, simply because it, it gave me that uh, sort of uh, 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 mindset to be careful in my drafting. You know, you don't want your agreement uh, ending up in court with parts of it which is ambiguous and open to dispute. So you sort of tend to tighten all the loose screws, and to some extent, you go overboard. In- over designing your agreements, but I see that as an advantage, a disputes background.
0: Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I've always said to my corporate colleagues, you'd be much better corporate lawyers if you did a few disputes, because there's nothing quite like sitting in a courtroom or an arbitration hearing having one of your contracts ripped to shreds uh, to focus <laughs> the mind. So exactly. I think we can agree. Um so you, you then moved into the construction group and obviously very heavily engaged for a number of years in Project RAPID, which I, I mentioned earlier, one of the world's largest petrochems projects. Uh, what, what can you tell us about that project and the, and the lessons you learned along the way? Well,
1: um, yeah, RAPID is a huge undertaking, probably the largest ever for us as a group and in this region. And I think you can... National Geographic, I believe, did, did a one-hour documentary on it. So it's, it's all out there. You can look it up. But for me, I think um, as the construction lawyer tasked with making sure that the, the project documents and the ITBs or the, 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 the contract documents are properly crafted, um, what I would say is the time spent in strategizing uh, and coming out with a comprehensive contract document, that was very critical. Because if we had done that in a slip manner or just meander along as we entered the project, we, we would have gotten into trouble, right? And um, I know we can't plan for any eventualities, especially in a project as complex and integrated as rapid. But I think the contract documents that we did uh, where we sort of balance out the risk allocation between the parties that gave us a, a, an advantage in managing the project well. And, and um, it, to some extent, it gave us a leverage in negotiations with the, the contractors.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. And it, looking back in terms of the biggest challenges you faced on that project, presumably coordination, integration, things like that, but from your perspective?
1: Definitely coordination and integration. Because yeah. uh, to be honest, the, the problem was you've got this huge um, process plan EPCCs that are supposed to come online and they don't work in isolation. You need utilities, you need infrastructure to support them. But because of the timeline, we had to award the huge refinery and plant camp EPCCs first and scramble to award the infrastructure contracts after that. So you can imagine the the, the very tight schedule we had to to rush to make sure the utilities and supporting infrastructure are there when these plants are ready for startup and commissioning.
0: So with the benefit of hindsight, what's the one thing you would have done differently?
1: All right, um, I would have paid more attention to the technology license agreements. Now, given the timeline, these technology agreements were signed probably in the early 2011, 2012 thereabout, without really a clear picture on execution because we've probably not uh, achieved financial close financial investment decision or FID on, on RAPID yet. So what we found later on when we had gone for project financing that some of these provisions in, in the license agreements were not bankable. So we had to go back to the license source and ask for changes to be made. That that was pretty challenging.
0: Okay. Now, let's just change tack slightly. Um, One of the questions I get often asked by young lawyers is, what attributes does a lawyer need to succeed in private practice? And I confess I always give the same answer, and that answer is common sense. Others call it commerciality or understanding your client's business. But fundamentally, I believe we're all talking about the same thing. When when you reflect on your career today, what's helped you to succeed?
1: I think in short, Peter, is being pragmatic and uh, 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 practical in, in my advice and solutions because really, I mean, more so for an in-house counsel, the the clients, or in this case my management, doesn't need a legal thesis or perfectly crafted legal opinion, you know, of what the law is. They want a solution. And oftentimes um, what lawyers would do is they give the legal opinion, having thought that they've done a good job. But for the client is how do I take this legal opinion and guide me into the next steps I need to take to arrive at a proper solution. So that would be the critical role you need to play as an in-house counselor.
0: Yeah, right. Pragmatism and commerciality. in my mind, that's pretty much common sense. Um, So I think, again, we're on the same page. I mean, there's a lot of talk at the moment about how the profession is changing. And certainly that change has been accelerated by technology in recent years. I think as a lawyer in private practice, I've seen more change in the last five years than perhaps in the previous 20 years. From an in-house perspective, are you seeing big changes? Um, And and what what are those changes?
1: Oh, definitely
0: digitalization, Peter. Uh,
1: as we spoke just now, working from home uh, is, is a huge change and the infrastructure that is needed to support it. I remember years ago when I was just starting out my pupilage, um, my master had this habit of not wanting to give out his email. Now, because during that time, email was quite, quite new and, and, and it was quite cutting edge, if you like. You know, we, we transact our business via facsimile, if you remember what those are. So he said was, emails are just too fast. It doesn't give me time to really absorb and study the problem and, and to be able to give proper advice. So you can imagine we've gone from facsimile to email is, is probably archaic today to what you have um, online, uh, like what we're doing now. So you can imagine the speed in which we have needed to cope with in doing
0: our work yeah, yeah no, <clears throat> i think we can all sympathize with that i i bemoan the day that email arrived and people would clients would ring you up saying what's the answer and uh, you'd say well what's the question and, and they would say but i've emailed it to you and it hadn't arrived on your screen yet um, and that just seems to be getting worse and worse but yeah. so that that's that's as of today i mean looking forward over the next say five years what do you think the next big change is going to be definitely AI.
1: I I came across uh, this thing called blockchain EPCC contracts, right? So you can imagine where we'll be headed with with technology
0: with AI. Yeah, yeah. that's a fair comment. Okay, if we we put Patronus to one side just for a minute, um, just observing what I've seen in my time in Malaysia, it strikes me that in-house legal functions generally are a bit of a work in progress in many companies. Many are relatively recently established, um, so quite early on their journey. Is that am I right about that, or do you see things differently?
1: I think you're you're right, Peter, because I think for Malaysia, a lot of companies, and I would say even corporates, they, they've they've yet to come around to the value of having an in-house legal department, right? And they've always seen legal as a cost center, so it's something which um unnecessary evil, if you like. So yeah. if I'm not getting myself into any disputes, I don't need to have an in-house department. That 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 mindset is changing, although it may not be as fast as we like it to, but it is changing, it is evolving as, as companies begin to slowly realize the value of having a,
0: a legal department. Okay. And how, how do you think we can accelerate that change? Because, I, I mean, I, it probably sounds a bit self-serving, but I do think when I compare Malaysia's state of development for in-house versus other countries in which I've operated, I do think Malaysia's in-house uh, teams do need to develop to be more strategic and seen more as a value-add rather than as a cost center. How, how do we help Malaysian companies realize that? I
1: think... Um if you ask me it's more experiential, management needs to experience the benefit. it needs to be tangible, you know like uh, uh, I remember years ago, even for Petronas, we we never had an in-house tax department. It was only as late as ten years ago we, we began to set up an in-house tax department, but when management began to see the savings that came about about you know how how we go about doing our contracts and taxes, uh, that became the so-called threshold for them to say "Ah, the aha moment. Similarly for for legal. And and there are many opportunities out there now, as as you are well aware, the uh, implementation of Section 17A of the MACC Act is a good example. Companies are probably in the dark. How do I go about having adequate measures in my organization? Now, this is where the in-house can come in and and demonstrate uh, the value the role that they can play in, in steering and guiding these companies.
0: Yeah, that's a little bit of a catch-22, isn't it? Until they use lawyers, they don't see the value. Um, but until they see the value, they don't want to pay for the lawyers. <laughs> but, uh, I guess we'll have to struggle with that.
1: The best the best teacher in that situation would be, <laughs> I say this candidly, Peter, is that, well, let them experience it. Somebody gets fined a huge amount of money, or some director is jailed. And then you begin to realize that, oh, I I need to fix this, you know?
0: Yeah, it's it's very interesting you make that comment. When I I first worked in Japan about 20 years ago, uh, if you'd asked one of the big trading companies, can I meet your head of compliance? They wouldn't have understood what you were saying. Nobody had a compliance department, so there was no head of compliance. And then one of them got a massive fine um, under the US FCPA. And the following Monday morning, they all had a head of compliance who who had been given a new business card. They had no idea what they were doing, but they'd been given a new business card and told to work it out. So I completely agree with you. Um, Just going back to your sort of disputes background, document management systems seem to me in fairly rare supply in Malaysia. Not very many companies have what I would call a, a sort of proper document management system. I'm suspecting Patronus is probably the exception because you're so big, but um, is that right?
1: Well, contrary to what you, you think, uh, Peter, we've struggled. We've struggled for many years. I remember years ago when I first joined, well, within the group TLC, we used to sort of scan our documents or agreements into these CD rooms and store them away and things like that. But the challenge is not so much of having the systems, it is the sustainability maintaining the system, and ensuring it uh, for posterity, if you like. Now, we're not very good at that. And part of the reason also is we tend to go for the most expensive and the most complex systems, which if you look at it, in in the long run, nobody really wants to maintain such a thing, you know? So the whole idea is you want to have a sustainable system is to make it simple, make it easy to manage, and that... um, you can keep it for posterity in the sense that when this person goes, the next person that comes can take it up and and carry on. So that that's been a challenge, but I think in the last probably just the last five years, we've managed to put something in place that makes sense and get people to buy in and
0: subscribe to it. That's good. That's good to hear. But yes, now I agree with you. Having the system is one thing, but systems are only as good as the people using them. It, So garbage in, garbage out is a well-used expression (laughs) for good reason. So, uh, I mean, turning back to Petronas, I mean, the size of your in-house legal team probably makes you the largest law firm in Malaysia. Uh, What are the benefits you see in in having such a team?
1: Okay, obviously, um, you know, a lot of things we we can manage in-house with the capacity and, and the size that we have. So like 17A is a good example. I mean, we've begun to do in-house trainings for our own board of directors. We have 500 work companies within the group and and we've also done engagement with key people. So to educate, to engage and and basically create awareness. So this is only able if we have the capacity and resources. Um, Other than that, I think what, is very, very crucial for us having in-house a large in-house team is that we are then able to advise management on a fit for purpose situation if you like, meaning that, yeah, we can get external councils to advise them or any other situations like mergers and acquisitions and all that, but the, the last mile to take it to our management committees, our board of directors and the decision makers that is something which I believe only an in-house is able to do and do it well. So, sure. yeah, it's amongst the benefits of uh, having a huge in-house team.
0: Yeah, no, that's, that's interesting. And You mentioned from time to time you obviously do use lawyers in private practice. How, how does having that real expertise in-house alter how you interact with lawyers like myself in the outside world?
1: Well, um, I think um, it's, it's crucial. You, you, you need to have both uh, as a balance because we may not necessarily have expertise in certain areas. And for a multinational like us, where we operate in what, almost 50 world countries in the world, I mean, overnight, I may need a tax advice for the United States. Who do I go to, right? So that's the role that the external councils will play. And um, like I say, again, Specific areas like now we are pivoting our business towards renewables. So, what's the law surrounding renewables? Uh, hydrogen storage, you know, solar and things like that. Which at this moment in time we may not have the uh, capability in house. So we would, you know, reach out again to to, to excellent. So it's it's a uh, if you like is a is sort of a symbiotic
0: kind of relationship. Yep. That that makes a lot of sense. Um, Okay, again, let's change track one more time. Um, I don't think it's possible to have a conversation between an in-house lawyer and an external lawyer without talking about costs. Uh, Now, construction disputes are notorious for being document heavy and hence amongst the most expensive forms of dispute that routinely need to be resolved. Is it your view that the costs have now become excessive?
1: yes. And we've seen the escalation in the last couple of years, which I believe is the primary reason that parties are actually uh, more motivated to to, to settle an issue. Because when I remember when I first started out, arbitration was the preferred uh, forum simply because it was cheaper than to litigation. But over the years, somehow, the arbitration costs have, have gone up substantially. And, and this has, uh, has had a negative effect, I believe.
0: Yeah. And in that context, there's been a lot written in recent years about how lawyers charging based on the hourly, the hourly time charge is a thing of the past. Are you starting to see that in practice, that hourly rates are disappearing and more creative billing arrangements are being put in place? And If so, what sort of things do you, do you see and what do you like?
1: Yes, definitely. I think... Uh, We've got a different sort of packages, if you like, being being offered now. Apart from the hourly retainer, so we've seen a sort of uh, a lump sum hour hourly kind of package where, okay, I'm giving you 50 hours of legal advice for a fixed lump sum. It is up to you how you use it. So if you find there's a need to add on more, we can we can add on. But if you work within that 50 hours, it's fine. This is so much you pay. So there are many, many variations. Uh, right. We have, have uh, what you call uh, uh, people being seconded over from legal firms on a full time basis for a fixed retainer. So what the legal firms do is all right, uh, this is a lawyer of five years standing. I will charge you 20,000 ringgit. That takes into account her salary, plus, you know, some markup for the firm, admin costs and things like that. And this person is acquainted for a fixed duration, six months to a year. So, yes, there are many, many permutations.
0: Okay. Yeah, well, certainly we're seeing that not just in Malaysia, but also around the world. I mean, some of the things we're seeing in other jurisdictions, which I I haven't seen so much yet in Malaysia, are things like legal project managers, often ex-lawyers who are employed to do non-legal tasks obviously at much lower rates, historically have been done by associates which is leading to better cost estimates better tracking of costs against budget flagging of out of scope work that that seems to be being quite effective in big cases in other places we're seeing professional pricing teams helping to scope work at the beginning so suddenly where I grew up in a world where the client said can we have a fixed fee for a dispute you'd instantly say no don't be ridiculous nowadays fixed fees are being proposed because we've got more data, we're using data analytics to look back at previous cases and we've got a much better idea of what a case will actually cost. And then obviously there's technology for document review being used, predictive coding, other forms of artificial intelligence. Um, so there's a lot of different things starting to appear as, as tech uh, gets involved. And I'm sure there'll be others, but have you seen anything in your role that's been particularly effective uh, which you would describe as sort of a newish tool?
1: Well, I think um, a lot of interest is probably in predictive tools, tools that are able to sort of troubleshoot potential problems early. And as you know, in, in our field of dispute, if these things can be nipped in the butt or uh, managed early on, it would definitely reduce the cost exposure if it were to go full-blown. So, that sort of tools, I think, will be
0: beneficial. Sure. And I I mean, I'm guessing from what you've already said, but in terms of share communication at an early stage and a willingness from your external counsel to sort of share the gain and the pain um, probably is quite a good attribute in terms of controlling costs on these big cases. Certainly, my experience is the more you talk about costs up front, the better both parties' experience tends to be. I think a lot of lawyers historically have been almost terrified of the word costs getting mentioned. And when a client raises it, they sort of groan in inwardly and think, oh, have I really got to talk about it? I think people are getting better at engaging proactively. Again, is that your experience? Yes.
1: And I think what, like what you see it, it helps being transparent up front. And, and this is our experience with very familiar firms like you know yourselves and all that and we work with. Over the last couple of years, that it's 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 good to be transparent, so that the client knows, then the council knows, rather than keeping everything hush hush. And then the client's biggest fear is always get lumped with a huge bill that you know. To me, is counterproductive. Then we have to go through every line item to justify why the amount is such. So yeah, being transparent helps and. It is not contrary to what councils will think that clients are penny pinching people. I think if they can see the value in the advice given, we won't we won't uh, we won't have hesitation to pay, right? Yeah. but be transparent. That helps.
0: Yeah, I can see that because construction arbitration has become so expensive. We've obviously seen a bit more alternative dispute resolution talked about. And in in Malaysia, you've got the statutory adjudication, the CIPAA. Um, In your view, has that been a success? Has it reduced the number of your cases going to arbitration?
1: Okay, Um, we were in the midst of when this legislation came about. (laughs) As advised by your previous partner, we were very worried that it would turn out to be quite a nightmare, as in the UK's experience, to sort of spawn a whole sub-industry of adjudicators <laughs> if you like. But we didn't see that here. I don't believe we it really, uh, it's been manageable. It's been manageable. Yes, in Rapid, we, would, we had a couple of SIPA claims. Um, I would say in the 10s or thereabout, and and most of it, I think strategically we were able to manage in the sense that um, for the client, it was simply looking at are there any monies left in the project to pay the adjudication order, right? And of course, um the the, the issue with us is because patronas being patronas, it attracts a lot of people to make claims. So yeah. we had to be very careful to see if those claims because sometimes you get Tier 3, Tier 4, and Tier 5 subcontractors come in, right? So obviously under the CPA you can't, but they still come. So I think it's been manageable. It's been manageable.
0: That's good to hear. But leaving aside the statutory adjudication scheme, would you like to see greater use of mediation or expert determination in the industry?
1: Okay. From my own personal experience, mediation has been not very productive for us. Uh, It's been an expensive affair, rather, of seeing the mediator chit-chatting and having coffee with the parties. Unfortunately, we've not had good experiences. But what I suppose we've tried to do is uh, to go more towards having an in-house mediation in the sense that rather than appointing a third party, we get senior management of both parties to sit down and seek resolution first. That's a more cost-effective approach.
0: OK, now that, that's very interesting. Um, and of course, now we've got the new COVID law that requires mediation of some disputes. So we may all have, we'll have to get a bit more familiar with it. But I, I hear what you say about paying people a lot of money to have cups of coffee. Uh, I've had a little bit of that experience myself. Um, well, one last topic, if I may go, and I just wanted to touch briefly on the subject of expert evidence. Um, What are some of the do's and don'ts, as far as you're concerned, for experts in the construction industry? I mean, perhaps before you answer that, there was a case you're probably familiar with in the Hong Kong Court of Final Appeal uh, back in 2004, Linfield and Tahoe Design Architects. Uh, And that was a case decided. um, And the judge explained uh, in his judgment for that case uh, what he thought was good in terms of experts and what he didn't. In particular, he said he was less persuaded by an expert who tended a long and rambling expert report. He found that same expert to lack impartiality. Um, In your experience, is brevity of an expert's report important in conveying that that expert's uh, expertise?
1: Yes, definitely. I've experienced situations where we've got very, very good experience and credible expert witnesses, but for one reason or another, they just couldn't get their case across. And, and th- this is no fault of their own because as you know, if you are an academician, you know, presenting your case in court can be very dry. It's like reading a textbook. And this is the job of counsels. What we do is we try to extract the gist or at least the key messages that the experts are trying to put across. And we as lawyers then craft it in a very succinct, precise, understandable manner to be presented to the judge, right? So to me, it is not necessarily so. What's more important is, I would feel, I mean, in the case of the arbitration, it to have an arbitrator that is able to understand the case better. For example, if my case revolves around issues of design or engineering, I would rather have a senior engineer to be the arbitrator but it involves issue of documents and evidence, evidential issues, maybe a former retired judge. So it depends on the subject matter. I think that's more rather than paying a very renowned expert to to present your case. It's not necessarily positive.
0: Funnily enough, I was speaking at a webinar only yesterday on the subject of how to choose an arbitrator. And those were two of the points I was talking about. Um, I'm in violent agreement with you. Um, Just finally, in terms of the process around experts, you you often see experts directed to meet in advance of a hearing to try and narrow the issues. When you get to a hearing, you sometimes see what's called hot tubbing, which I suspect you're familiar with. Are you a fan of either of those processes or have you seen something else that works better?
1: No. No, Peter. You know why? Because we realised that... um Experts in your own right, they come with a huge ego, and <laughs> you put them both in the same tub. You don't necessarily get consensus, you know. So, so it is not. It is not. Uh, well, I, I've not experienced it, but based on my little what you call uh, interactions with experts, I don't think it's it's, it's positive. No,
0: no well, I don't. I don't necessarily disagree. Um, Finally, I mean, just before we wrap up, have you looking at the profession today and the young budding students coming into the profession, have you got any last comments or advice for them wishing to follow in your footsteps or indeed any burning issues you'd like to see the, the legal profession as a whole address?
1: Well, generally my advice to young fresh lawyers coming out is I think um, before you go in-house, do spend some time in, in practice be it corporate or litigation or whatever field for that matter, because um, the experiences that you bring uh, from practice is invaluable, right? Of course, the battle scars as well. And, and this adds value to you as an in-house counsel. So, so don't rush. And, and I've been asked many times, oh, how long should I spend in practice before I come in-house? I, I would say substantial, but not too long that you become a partner, then you become hard for you to leave, I think four to five years is about right. Sufficient time for you to gain enough experience,
0: but not too long that you find it hard to leave. I think that's very wise counsel. On that, that note, Go will conclude. Um, thank you so much for your time. You've been very generous with your time this morning, and I really appreciate it. And hopefully we can catch up again soon and um, discuss some of these issues in more detail over, over lunch or dinner. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you,
1: Peter. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud and visit our website herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.